Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, folks. My name is Rain Wilson. I am one of the hosts. And my name is Reza Aslan. I am the other host. And Rain, people might not know this about you, but you're white. Yes? Yes. Just, I just yes, want to make am. sure, like, you know, you... You self-identify. You, I couldn't be. I couldn't be whiter. My heritage is Norwegian, Dutch, and English. If you were any whiter, you'd be translucent. Is that yep. a fair mm-hmm. statement? Yeah, I think that so. is a fair. Yeah. That is a fair statement. And yet, my friend Rain Wilson, uh, people know this about you. If they don't, they should. You do a lot of good work around the world. One of the many issues that you're most passionate about is education, particularly girls' education, particularly girls' education in in very, very poor places, shall we say, primarily non-white places. Am I still still on the right track here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. But, you know, you have to be careful when you have that conversation because you immediately can go to like white saviorism. Like, oh, here's the wealthy white guy going into the poor environment and feeling sorry for all the all the people of color and and bestowing their wealth and their knowledge onto the deserving. It is Um, a minefield. It is. It is. It's a minefield. So we you know, we do this work in Haiti and we certainly talk about it. We raise money for it at Lee Day Haiti. But we swiftly, after founding the organization, have made it Haitian run and organized with a staff of about 50 Haitians working on these issues. We just advise from the board and we try and raise money. But it's a it's a minefield. It's it's very it's very tricky. And um, yeah, we well us white people, man. Yeah, don't get me started. But what do you what do you got to say about this? Well, look, I mean, got, look, looks like you got something to say. <laughs> I mean, it, this idea of the white savior, it's not as clear cut as uh, I think people make it seem yeah. sometimes. I mean, look, it, there's no question. There's no denying the fact that there are some regions in the world, Africa, Middle East, Haiti, where you do a lot of your work that have, you know, long served as a kind of backdrop for all these like white fantasies of like heroism and mm-hmm. and often oftentimes that's done under this sort of banner of like making a difference, right? I'm out there making a difference, but in reality what I'm really doing is like having a great adventure or making up for my my uh you know wealth in some way by like going out into the world and and giving uh you know 
whatever help and freedom you know to to you know the these dark and savage lands and certainly <laughs> i mean you and i are both in hollywood certainly hollywood has definitely played its part in perpetuating that sure. that the myth of the white savior Absolutely. like basically it's like an entire industry right of yep. uh, of uh, you know movies about well-intentioned kind-hearted white people who saves the poor needy person of color and like we could go on forever naming movies yeah. <laughs> like that right but here's the problem okay what happens when the person doing the saving is in fact white <laughs> you know what i'm saying yeah constance wu has this great quote about the film the great wall do you remember the great wall Matt Damon. Uh, that's Matt Damon with a ponytail fighting dragons in medieval China. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Constant Wu said this whole thing where she said, uh, our heroes, meaning Chinese heroes, our heroes don't look like Matt Damon, which is 100% true. But what happens when the hero does look like Matt Damon? Like, how are we supposed to respond to a genuine hero when that person happens to be white? Well, this brings up a lot of things. I mean, first of all, the reason that that $250 million epic was greenlit was because they had a star of Matt Damon's magnitude in uh -huh. the lead role, and there's not any Chinese stars that can command that kind of uh, box office yep. where people are willing That's to put right. up that kind of money. So, you know, there's kind of chicken and egg kind of thing going on there. Also, it's interesting because I've for a long time been trying to get this project going about this um, civil rights pioneer named Stetson Kennedy, who's a white guy who infiltrated the Klan and uh, wrote about it from the inside and actually brought the story of the Klan to the Superman radio hour and got the writers of Superman to have Superman battle the Klan. No. It's a fantastic story. It's uh, uh, unbelievable. But it's about racism, and it's about a white guy, and he's a hero. And there mm -hmm. were some white heroes in the battle of civil rights and fighting racism. But we've heard a lot of their stories, and we're at a time right now where telling this story is very, very difficult because, you know, Stetson Kenny had a lot of black friends and allies, but this is kind of a white guy doing anti-racism work. And, you know, the, we've, we've had trouble moving the project forward because it's, and, and maybe we should have trouble moving that project forward. I don't know. Well, so this is obviously a topic that I'm very interested in. And I have a friend, uh, a colleague, Jyoti Tottam, who is the deputy op-ed editor at the New York Times, uh, a, a brilliant journalist. And she has written a book called The Sisters of Mokama, which is the story of a group of nuns. They're like between the year, ages like 15 and 50 or something like that, who travel okay. to India right after partition to essentially establish uh, a hospital, a teaching hospital, and to train uh, nurses. And it's such a fascinating story, and they've done such amazing work there. But as you can imagine, the story of a bunch of white women who go to India with, they don't know anything about Indian politics or culture, they don't speak the language, who are there to quote unquote, save 
the population brings up a lot of these very, very tricky subjects. So I'm really fascinated to talk about, you know, the whole white savior uh, issue with Jyoti. But I figured that this would be, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, a good episode to not invite you to, to, you know, as the white person. I'm going to sit this one out. You, I'm going to sit You just this quietly one out. sit in the corner. While you know the, what? While the brown people talk about white saviors. I'm going to just listen <laughs> and learn. So without f- further ado, let's bring on Jyoti Tatum to the milkshake. Jody, thank you so much for joining. I was going to say us on Metaphysical Milkshake, but it's just <laughs> me. Just lonely old me. Well, that's all right. I'm excited to be here, Reza. I mean, I know that as a gigantic Office fan, that's why you were going to do this podcast anyway. So <laughs> it must be quite, quite a disappointment. But uh, I'm not disappointed. I am thrilled to have you here. I love this book, Sisters of Mokama. Here it is. Oh, thank you. We're going to talk a lot about this book, but it the story for people who are unfamiliar with it, it's the story mm-hmm. of these six nuns from Kentucky, of all places, who travel right. to uh, post-partition India um, to set mm-hmm. up this hospital, I guess primarily to treat leprosy, but you know it, become, it becomes sort of a general uh, hospital in the state of Bihar, and also to train mm-hmm. nurses. And first off, you know, before we kind of get into the book itself and talk about these incredible women and, and what they've done and sure. their legacy, well, why don't we set the scene um, for a minute? For, for those of us who have yet to see Disney's Miss Marvel— <laughs> if you can. I've heard it teaches everything you wanted to know about right? partitions. I, I, I mean, I feel kind of guilty because I haven't seen it yet, and I feel like it's you know brown mm-hmm. people on TV, and so I'm therefore obligated. Yeah, to my watch kids it. are huge, huge Miss Marvel. I, I'm go- I'm going to watch it. Everybody at Disney, please, mm-hmm. I don't send me emails. I am going to watch it. I'm very excited to watch it. I'm sure it's fantastic. <laughs> I love the fact that it is teaching, not just. Kids, honestly, I had a conversation with like a 40-year-old man the other day who watched it and he was like, I had no idea about the history of India mm-hmm. and Pakistan and partition. And I was like, are you joking? Are you kidding me? But all right, fine. <laughs> fine. <laughs> TV, teaching people about history. So, But for those of us who are not caught up on Miss mm-hmm. Marvel, can you give us a, a little bit of the background here? Set the scene of exactly what was happening in India post-partition, and particularly in, in Bihar and, and, and uh, where, the, where the nuns set up. Yeah. And thank you for asking me this question, because, you know, when I saw the Twitter commentary about like, what? I never heard about partition. Uh, right. I was like, in fact, I wrote an entire book uh, about, about this. There you go. This is this is my chance to to tell you. Um, if you're wondering, like, did Americans have anything to do with partition? Well, in fact, they did. How about that? Uh-huh. Um, so that's sort of uh, <laughs> that's, that's sort of where it starts. I mean, we actually had to start at the end of World War II mm. because, in fact, um, you know, there's been a lot of history written about that period. Nine, you know, the the years leading up to World War II, the war itself, which, you know, obviously involved um, so many countries, including India, which, you know, people don't know. And so actually that decision about what India was going to do in World War II, when it was still a colonial um, holding of the UK, that was an incredibly important decision because the British and the British Army needed India, like they needed Indian soldiers, they needed um, India to supply this like massive army that was fighting all over the world. So um, 
you know, it's a, it's a strange situation in a sense, like you're basically colonizing these people and then asking them to fight yeah. on your behalf right. for some other people's freedom, right? So you can see that this was not an easy sell for a lot of Indians. I mean, there were, and this was a, a deep and divisive debate within the Indian independence movement. I mean, if you read some of the, the history of that period, it's really kind of fascinating, um, this, this debate back and forth. You know, there, there were um, obviously like factions who didn't agree with ultimately the, the Indian National Congress decided like, okay, we will join the fight, but they, they made it like not quite explicitly, but basically a condition that, but when this war is over, we're out of here. Like, you, you know, we, we are expecting that India will be free and the mm-hmm. British will leave. So, I mean, that's, that's a, an oversimplification of like many years of intense political debate and sort of jockeying over this issue. But ultimately, like that's, that's basically what happened. You know, um, the war ended and soon after the war ended, the British started making moves uh, to both leave India like meaning, you know, remove all the Amer- all the, the British troops. American troops were there as well. They were starting to leave India um, and they were starting this process of, okay, fine, you know, thank you for fighting in the war. We're leaving now. The British left uh, without a very clear plan. And the worst part of it was, there wasn't a really clear political plan about who was going to be in charge of this massive population, this massive territory when they left. Because there was no divi- no uh, consensus about who would be in charge, there was also no agreement about, well, exactly what kind of country is India going to be? Is it, right. you know, simply this like huge, multi-religious, multi-ethnic, multicultural country or is it uh, one country for Hindus, another country for Muslims? So again, none of those questions were really fully answered other than to draw a line on a map, you know, between, you know, parts that were mostly majority Hindu and mostly majority Muslim and say, okay, that's it, you know, find your, you know, good luck, we're leaving, find your places, um, and we're out of here. So partition, the trauma of partition is basically those months before independence in 1947 and af- you know, immediately after independence when people were like, okay, we are very excited to be independent. Thank you for leaving British Empire. But now it's kind of a, a huge, huge mess. That was the chaos of partition. Yeah, possibly anywhere between 10 yeah. and 20 million displaced people. That's right. Deaths mm-hmm. ranging from anywhere in the hundreds of thousands to maybe 2 million. Um, mm-hmm. Just, you know, absolute chaos <laughs> um, as mm-hmm. what you have yeah. is the, the largest mass migration in the history of the world. That's right. And now, folks, a little word from our sponsor, Better help. You know, wellness, mental wellness, self-care is so important for all of us. It's especially important for me. 
I wake up every morning. I have my kind of devotional period, which is meditation and some prayer. Um, I do a little journaling sometimes. Of course, I have my weekly therapy. These are the things that keep me grounded, that keep me kind of aligned with my life's mission and purpose with a little bit of serenity thrown in. You know, it's funny, like, even to this day, there's still a weird stigma about getting therapy, which just doesn't make any sense at all. Like you like you rightly said, you know, we are all mm. dealing with a world on fire. And listen, <laughs> it helps to have someone to talk to about all that stuff. And what's great is that BetterHelp is an online therapy service. It offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. You don't need to go sit in a, uh, an, a, a dusty office, you know, in a waiting room with a bunch of other patients. This is very private. It's all about you and the things that you need to get off your chest. And by the way, it's also much more affordable than in-person therapy. You can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash milkshake. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash milkshake. Give it a try. Uh, Rain, um, I have heard, yes. I've heard it said mm. that there's this thing that um, some people have and it's called... Um, what is it? Fun? Is that is that a I've, is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. Fun is a fun is a thing. It's really important. It's a it's actually an important part of our self care. You know, a lot of us are burned out, overworked, stressed out. Huh. Fun is important, Reza. And you got to bring some fun into your life. And apparently, people have fun during something called free time. Am I saying yeah, that free right? Time. Free yeah. time. Well, I, yeah. I, I I'd never I neither have free time nor do I have fun. So right. I'm not sure about this, but what I do know is that mm. if I did have some free time and mm -hmm. if I were a person who had fun, well, then best fiends would be what I would spend my time doing, my friend. Best fiends. Oh, my God. It's so much fun. I love it. It is an adorable puzzle adventure game, and you're not going to be able to put it down. So much fun. Reza, I just recently, <laughs> I have not stopped on best fiends since I first downloaded the app. I'm on level 125 Ooh. called Riptides. All of my little fiends, you know, I've been cultivating, growing, grooming for battle. I've brought them in to fight those evil nasty slugs on a boat. It was awesome. Best Fiends is a free to download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting levels for new adventures and challenges every single time you play. Listeners, listen, you've earned your fun time. So go to the App Store or, or Google Play to download Best Fiends for free. Plus, earn even more with $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. And in the into the into this chaotic situation, mm -hmm. steps the six nuns from Kentucky. They were between, I guess, twenty and fifty years old. Mm -hmm. They walk into um, this country. They don't speak any Hindi. Obviously, mm -hmm. I, I imagine they don't really have any clue about the culture or um, the religion. Probably know very little about the politics or anything else that's going on and they just kind of mm -hmm. show up. What did they find when they when they arrived um, in Bihar? 
Yeah. So that, that is exactly what the situation was. So like at that same time that, you know, 1946, when, you know, really like nobody, like no one knows what's going to happen. They get this letter saying, please, can you come and help with this hospital? And who, who sent the letter? Just, it was the Jesuits? Jesuits yeah. who were already working in this part of Bihar, it's the state of Northern India. And they had been trying to set up a hospital for years, but again, partly because of that uncertainty and also partly because that the Jesuit mission was like one guy who had no medical skills or training <laughs> or <laughs> at all, he really was not equipped to set up a hospital. Um, but he had promised that. And, you know, by 1946, like the need for it especially as people started, you know, moving, um, there were refugees everywhere. It became extreme. And he, and he, it was sort of like a last ditch effort. Like maybe I can find some help. He was an American. Maybe I can sort of, um, you know, the archdiocese can call on some, some people in America, maybe someone will help. And these women said, yes, yes. They, like they, they decided to say yes. And why they said yes is also, a very interesting question. But I mean, that is basically the, the situation that they were coming into. On that note of why did they say yes? I mean, the Sisters of Charity, that's who they were, the Sisters of Charity. Um, of Nazareth, yeah. Of Nazareth. Um, you know, this is kind of their jam, isn't it? Like, that's kind of mm-hmm. what the Sisters of Charity were meant uh, to to do is to like show up at, in the middle of nowhere because mm-hmm. a Jesuit uh, priest was like, please help. It, mm-hmm. What can you tell us about kind of the this congregation, this this um, uh, this group of sisters, and kind of what what c- uh, compelled them to actually mm-hmm. step into this uh, truly unfamiliar mm-hmm. situation? Yeah, so it's true. Like this is the kind of thing that they did. You know, they yeah. were kind of like you know, war, disease, bring it on. Like they, they had done this at many points in their history. Like they, you know, they'd been around in Kentucky since um, the early 1800s. They had served as nurses during the Civil War, the Spanish-American War. I mean, really like that was their thing. Um, I mean, there was one of, one of their um, sisters, uh, like, you know, died on the battlefield in the Civil War and was like given a, you know, a burial with like both Union and Confederate troops because wow. like they respected them so much. Um, but, you know, it's interesting by the 1930s, um, you know, they've been around a while. They had become much more established in Kentucky and they kind of lost some of that. You know, they, they were sort of like, oh, we're running our schools and hospitals um, you know, actually, like we're we're gonna sort of stay at home. Like, you know, that, that was kind of the yeah. They had become less adventurous, and they had become an order who sort of stayed and like did you know good works closer to home in Kentucky. But you know what happened in World War II when so many women, so many nurses, American women, were going all over the world to to sort of to serve in the war effort. And, you know, young, like that was considered a very, I mean, incredibly difficult, but that was glamorous work. Like that was what you did if, yeah. you know, if you were sort of a woman with ideas and ambition and wanted to see the world, like you became a nurse and you you did that. And so the, the young sisters in this order, they wanted to do that as well, but their superiors 
they actually said no. Like FDR, you know, asked them, like, can you please serve overseas? And we said, they said, no, actually, we, we can't. Like, unless it's a real emergency, like, we're going to stay at home. <laughs> unless it's a real emergency, like world war, <laughs> you know, otherwise we're going to stay yeah. home. Anyway. Yeah. So, you know, by the, I mean, frankly, like the, the sisters were, were disappointed and, mm. um, one of them sort of like there, there was a visiting Jesuit who was going from the U S to India, um, at the end of 1945, the war had just ended. And she literally told him like, you know what, if you ever hear of an opportunity for us to go abroad, please tell us because like, we desperately like want we want to do what you're doing. Like you're going out into the world and having adventures. That's what we want to do. And that's exactly what happened. Then, you know, he went to India, he heard about, you know, this place where they needed nurses and, he, you know, and they said like, Hey, what about those women? Like they're really smart. They know how to run hospitals. Like they want to go abroad. Let's ask them. And so that's what happened. Like they, you know, they had that opportunity that they didn't have in world war II. And they said, yes, absolutely, we're there. They were given, I mean, these young women, like they were given weeks, like they, you know, their superiors told them, okay, now that we're going, you've got like three weeks, go home to your families, say goodbye, and assume that you'll, you may never see them again. Right. Because yeah. that's basically what missionary life was yeah. like at that time. I'm really glad that you brought up the the issue about sort of women and the role that women assumed, you mm -hmm. know, uh, in, in that Second World War. Because in a lot of ways, this story has this very unexpected feminist streak to it. And you even talk about mm -hmm. these nuns as trying to carve out a, a a new kind of role as women in the church, right? That this was... Mm -hmm. Obviously, a missionary enterprise, yes, and we'll talk about that. And obviously, this was an uh, a, 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 a an enterprise of mercy, right? That they were there to do good, to help, and uh, you know, as much as they could. But at the same time, they also, I feel like they were fairly conscious of the fact that their actions in leaving Kentucky, going to to India, um, was sort of very deliberately meant to. Um, create this kind of different position, a different understanding of the role that women could play in what is, mm -hmm. I don't need to tell anyone, a very patriarchal <laughs> church. Can you talk about that aspect of this story, these women as, I, mm -hmm. I don't want to use the term feminist icon because that doesn't make any sense, but, but you know what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is something that I felt was sort of a subtext through so many of the letters that they would write home about, you know, sort of just describing what they were doing or um, describing like what it was like to actually do that work because, you know, yes, of course, they're missionaries, they're devout Catholic women in a Catholic religious community. Um, but they also were very aware of the fact that there were things that they could do as missionaries that they could not do if they stayed mm -hmm. at home. Um, and that was very, very appealing to certain kinds of women. In fact, um, you know, I, I won't get into like the details of canon law, but, you know, until like the late 1930s, if you were, um, uh, if you were a Catholic nun, you couldn't, 
if you stayed in the United States, um, you could be a nurse, but you couldn't be a doctor. But if you became a missionary, you were allowed to be a doctor, which is, of course, in a hospital setting, you know, a much more powerful, prestigious kind of thing. So, I mean, literally there were things that you couldn't do. And even when they were there, you know, like this was, again, like they're coming from one patriarchal system to another. India was um, just as, you know, just like, was no different in that sense from uh, the United States. And they, you know, they were running that hospital by themselves. I mean, the Jesuits might, might have invited them, but pretty much as soon as they got there, they you know, very kind of delicately distanced themselves and said, you know what, thank you for setting this up, but we're going to make the decisions on our own now. <laughs> you know what? Like, I know you want us yeah. to help you with your the school you're already running, but actually we're going to start our own school. Like we're going to do our own thing. Um, I mean, it was just everything. Like they, they, in the first few months, like they learned Hindi, they learned the trains, they sort of, figured out the political ins and outs of like what is going on in this sort of learning the trains way harder than learning Hindi. (laughs) I think that's about right. Yeah, (laughs) I think that's about right. So again, everything they were doing was, you know, taking advantage of that space that they had because they were missionaries and they were not, you know, as closely tied to um, what they call the mother house, like the sort of central headquarters that, you know, they would just sort of do things and kind of let, let people know later, like, you know, when they decided, you know what, we need bicycles to get around. Oh, but the order, like that wasn't really allowed. Like, well, they just kind of did it anyway and told them later, like, oh, by the way, I mean, they changed their, their habits, you know, like they started there in like very traditional, like heavy wool and cotton full length habits and these complicated bonnets. And that was just like not practical at all. And they were, you know, without really asking, they were like, you know what, we're just going to change this. Like, wait, you know, they were wearing even, um, you know, sort of regular clothes well before that became a thing after Vatican II. So, yeah, they kind of carved out this space to be much more independent than they would have been if they'd stayed at home. Hey, uh, Reza. Yeah. Do you remember on The Office when they had the Finer Things Club? Oh, do I. (laughs) Finer Things. So many of us enjoy these finer things, like Oscar did, and Toby, and Pam. And so many of us settle for blah coffee every day. But with trade coffee, you can start every morning with something special. Okay, so we want to tell you about Trade Coffee. It's a coffee subscription service. It's unlike anything you've tried before. They partner with top independent roasters to freshly roast and send the best coffees in the country direct to your home on your preferred schedule. Hey, Rain, how was the the coffee on the set of The Office? Not not very good. No, it was not good. Well, it's definitely not as good as Trade Coffee. I'll tell you that right now. Oh, Nice, nice segue. (laughs) And that's because your trade experience can be as simple or sophisticated as you want. You can quickly select from curated collections by roast, flavor, profile, brewing method, and more. Also, their team of experts do all the work for you. They taste test hundreds of coffees from across the U.S. every month. And then they end up curating about 450 exceptional coffees that make the cut. Or if you're a sophisticated coffee drinker like I am, and you want something curated just for you, then you just take a couple of minutes and you complete this really fun trade coffee quiz 
So Trade is the easiest way to get your very best tasting coffee delivered fresh when you need it. You got nothing to lose because Trade guarantees you will love your first bag. If not, they'll work with you to replace it for free. So if you want to support small business and brew the best cup of coffee you've ever made at home, it's time to try Trade Coffee. Right now, Trade is offering our listeners a total of $30 off your first order, plus free shipping at drinktrade.com slash milkshake. That's drinktrade.com slash milkshake for $30 off your subscription to the best coffees in the world. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's really extraordinary. They, they arrive, you know, to this region that is just absolutely riddled by violence. It's there's incredible destitution on the streets. Um, they're given this large, unheated structure. There's no electricity. There's no running water. Uh, there's no hospital beds. It's a hospital without any beds. That's kind of problematic. Uh, there's no medicine, by the way. There's like no nurses. There's no staff. It's basically just like the shell. And they're yep. kind of told, good luck. And then this kind of incredible transformation that happens with these women and and the work that they do. I mean, the, the story itself is is extraordinary. And what I love about it is that you have this incredibly intimate personal connection to it. Uh, you've said you've obviously mentioned this a thousand times, but your own mom was actually one of the nurses who was trained um, at this hospital in the 60s. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how the story of these nuns kind of entered your consciousness and how that Mm -hmm. sort of led to this place where you decided that, you know, you were going to write this book. I know the book took a very, very long time. Yeah, it's um, so, you know, as you mentioned, the hospital when it started had, you know, had nothing and not even nurses. So they, the nuns had to train their own nurses. Like they found women, local women who wanted to be nurses, set up a nursing school, And one of the Indian women who trained to be a nurse at Nazareth Hospital is uh, is my mother. She was there in the early 1960s. How old was she at the time? So she was 15 when she left home to become a nurse, uh, the same age that my daughter is now. I still like. (laughs) It's hard to believe, right? Get over that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, this is like this place and that experience of. leaving home um, to study nursing, it was something that, you know, in a sense, like my mother took for granted. It was just something she did a long time ago. So 
you know, by the time I was a teenager and, you know, you start, start to ask questions like, so, you know, how did we come to the United States? You know, I, I was born in India, although I grew up um, in the United States. Uh, like, how did we get here? Like, why did, like, why did you leave India? You know, all these questions that a lot of um, immigrant parents hear from, from their kids. So, you know, the story that she would tell me was not, it was, she was like, well, you know, I wanted to be, like, I left home. I was a nurse. Nurses could come here. You know, I had studied nursing with these American women from Kentucky in Bihar. And, you know, she would just sort of, she would talk about how strict they were, that, you know, it was, that it was hard work and, and all of that. But I think like a lot of immigrant parents do, she would sort of, you know, skip over the hard parts and <laughs> kind of skip to, and then we came here and everything is great in America right. mm-hmm. and we lived happily ever after. And here we are. So, um, you know, when you're growing up, uh, I'm sure like everybody has these kind of family stories that, you know, they're a little bit, you know, either bizarre or unusual or don't totally make sense or, you know, you don't really know the full story, but you kind of think, oh, well, whatever. Like it's, they're just my parents, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like what, whatever, whatever that is. So, you know, when I became, when I was older and went to India as a journalist and really spent some time in that particular part of India, which really is one of the most difficult parts of India to live in. I mean, uh, I mean, you go to Delhi or Bombay and tell someone you're going to Bihar, and the the first thing they'll usually ask you is like, "Why? Why would you go there? And like, why? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, <laughs> like, why would you go there by choice? Um, it's it's really like not. Um, I mean, there are beautiful parts of it. It's and it has a, a long and rich history, but it's life is, it, you know, it's hard to deny. It's very, very difficult there. So, um, so that's when I really started to kind of peel back the layers and try to figure out, well, how, like, why was this nursing school in this, you know, this out of the way place? Like, why did these American women come here of all places? And how did my mother get there? So that is really where the book started with me asking those questions. You know, it's, uh, I was talking about the not just the incredible transformation that these um, nuns underwent themselves, but the incredible work that they end up doing um, in Bihar and and the legacy that they have. You know that this the hospital is still open. People did. I mean, right? It's still there. Oh yeah, yeah, it's yeah. still there. It's still. still there. They were treating people. I mean, it's it's different than what it was. It's mostly like primary care now because there right. are other hospitals, but. Man, when COVID hit India, they needed that hospital. It was really, um, it was tough. As much as we have to contend with the fact that these missionaries, especially these, you know, Sisters of Mercy, did such incredible good. I mean, they've they've done so much uh, positive work um, in caring for uh, the the people and and um, helping develop this this area. It, it's still hard to grapple with the fact that they were missionaries and that fundamentally 
um, their motivation was to, you know, convert the heathen population to Christ, very much the exact same goal of the colonialists who had just fled, you know. <laughs> and I think what, what it does is it forces us to kind of really grapple with the uncomfortable grayness of this kind of missionary work. You are absolutely clear about the legacy of these sisters uh, and, and what they accomplished. Um, I love this line that you you have about their hospital where you say, every person who crossed its threshold was entitled to an equal dignity. This alone was a radical idea in a place where the bodies of Indian men, women, and children had been quite literally starved in the service of empire. And, and you know, I look at the, the subtitle, The Pioneering Woman Who Brought Hope and Healing to India. But they're white Christians. So, mm-hmm. like, if I were to change that subtitle to the white women, <laughs> the white Christian women <laughs> right. who brought hope and healing to India, you know where I'm going with this question, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Which is that these kinds of stories, regardless of how heroic the figures are, almost immediately nowadays lend themselves to the criticism of white saviorism. Right. Ah, oh, geez, it's just another white savior story. Oh, here are these white these white women of privilege coming to India in the guise of you know doing good, but in reality, you know, uh, they're sort of it's it's a it's a very it's a self serving project, right? That it's about it's about validating their privilege by engaging in some big emotional experience in a dark and foreign land. I'm sure you've heard people say this. What what's your response to that um mm-hmm. that critique? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's an important question to ask. I mean, as a writer or like anyone who's interested in these stories, I mean there there is I think something that's irresistible about the idea of, you know, just someone going on an adventure anywhere. Right. And, but you're right. Like these are white women who had a particular reason for going like a particular opportunity to go. So, but the way I think about it is it's, it's of course like up to me, you know, as a thinking person and, you know, as uh, a brown person, you know, to really think about this, but it wasn't only up to me because, in fact, the these American women in the story, they were confronted with this by Indian women, like as pretty much as soon as they got there, right? Like the the women whom they encountered, sort of like they did that work, like huh. they pushed back against. Um, you know, the notion, like the, the sort of offensive notions that they had, I mean, in their own ways, like they did that and they, they sort of forced the mission, the hospital, the order itself to examine these questions for themselves. Like, and that's actually like the, the second half of the book is, well, okay, yes, these white women set up the hospital. It's an amazing project. But then what happens when they bring Indian women into the community as nurses and nuns? And, you know, frankly, like they can't do this work without them. So, you know, those Indian women, like they're not just sitting there sort of, you know, blindly doing whatever um, they're told. Like 
in many ways, big and small, like they challenged um, the notions that these women had. And the order is different today because of it. The hospital is different today because of it. Um, so, you know, I guess the way I answer that question is like, it's it's not simply up to me to challenge. <laughs> like it's, they, they have been challenged all along the way. And that is actually part of the story. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think, Look, there's a lot of truth to this, the white savior trope, obviously. And I mean, there's, it's just a fact that there has been a very real and undeniable pattern of, you know, people in these, you know, less developed parts of the world, particularly South Asia, Middle East, Africa, who have been widely viewed as passive recipients of like the benevolence of white people, (laughs) right? Um, it, it that's undeniable, right? It's undeniable that this region has served as a backdrop for um, white fantasies of heroism. We've we've seen that, you know, throughout history. But I just I wonder if we've gone a little too far with this white savior trope because there's no question that we need to shed you know some light on the problem of white privilege. Um, but I think. Doing so can sometimes, A, uh, dismiss the very real contributions you know, of white people who gave up everything, who sacrificed sometimes their lives uh, to do what they thought was you know, good work, whether it's you know, motivated by their religion or their politics or, or what have you. But I also worry if like nowadays, this kind of white savior uh, critique has actually dissuaded um, you know, some people of privilege to actually, you know, meet the obligations that they would have in intervening in humanitarian disasters around the world, going out and mm-hmm. actually spending their money, you know, that they that they have made and and trying to change the world in in some sense for the better. Um, mm-hmm. so I I don't know. I to me. I'm conflicted. I, I really, really get it. I understand the critique, but I'm. I also, I don't know. It makes me prickle just a little bit when mm-hmm. I hear it. Well, I guess the way I think about it is, you know, if the answer, if if the the sort of white savior critique, if the conclusion to draw from that is, you know, well, no one should ever go anywhere outside of the, you know, their own community to (laughs) try to do anything because, you know, oh, well, that's just you and your white savior complex. I think that is, I'm not really sure if that accomplishes much in the world. Um, But what I would say is like, yes, you should, you know, if you are um, a privileged person going out and trying to help in the world, using your privilege to do that, I do think that it behooves you to kind of think about, you know, these questions and think about like, well, is there a way for me to do this work and not, you know, not just kind of um, do whatever I want just because like, well, this is, this is good work. You should just be grateful because, you know, frankly, it's hard work to kind of uh, allow the people that you're helping to truly you know, be a part of that work, you Mm -hmm. know, and, and this is definitely like what the hospital found, you know, if they were not going to simply impose themselves, that meant 
oh, you have to like give up some power. You have to bring Indian women into the leadership of your institution, which is what they did. It means that you have to learn the local language. It's you don't like expect people to just everyone to speak English. That's that's up to you. You have to do that hard work. You know, you have to learn um, the place that you're going in. You have to adapt your um, your institution, you know, your organization, your own work to what is actually needed. And um, I think that's the step that a lot of people never take. Yeah, and actually, this is kind of one of the things that I loved so much about the story of these nuns. Um, and yes, I mean, look, I think I, I agree with you. And I do think that the, 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 I would go so far as to say that the myth of the white savior um, can itself sometimes become a racist trope, you know, not just in the sense that it discourages people of means from engaging in the very real problems that that plague the world, but also in the idea that like the very act of wanting to do so is, is necessarily a kind of um, uh, expression of white dominance. You know, there, there's a lot that I that I have a problem with. But the thing mm-hmm. that I really am fascinated by is the way in which stories like this that sometimes get immediately dismissed by, you know, unthinking, though well-intentioned people as a, mm-hmm. a story of a white savior, miss the point. Because to me, I feel like a lot of these stories are mischaracterized as white savior tropes, when in reality, what we really find when we when we really dig down into these stories is that it's it's not that it's white people necessarily coming to save the other. It's often white people who are themselves saved by the encounter with the other, the the engagement with the foreign indigenous communities. You the, you brought up the the point that you know these nuns. They didn't know what the hell they were doing, and they really had to not just bring in help, but rely on that help and change, become different people. Like in a sense, you know, they came there for the salvation of India, and in reality, they found sort of their own salvation, right? So, so many of these stories is it, it kind of flips the white savior trope on its head, and in reality. It's the white person who is transformed and quote unquote saved when removed from his or her, you know, comfort uh, and thrust into these often unfamiliar situations, motivated by nothing but just kind of a sense of, you know, like a, a desire to do something meaningful. Yeah, I think the the part of the the white savior narrative that I find to be a problem is I think when it um, when it sort of ignores the agency of the people whom like you know missionaries or volunteer you know whoever it is you're talking about like when it ignores that like you know the people whom they're working with whom they're helping like they also have ideas about what's going on like they are also sort of participating in this project and working on it and shaping it and changing it and you know, they're not simply just kind of standing there, allow, you know, allowing themselves to be, quote unquote, saved. So I, I think, you know, and for me also, like that was frankly, um, the hardest part of 
the work and, and the research was, you know, I, I couldn't just tell the story of the American women. Like if I had done that, it like, it truly would have been like simply another like white savior story. So right. frankly, you know, it, it took a lot of, a lot of effort to find, like find people, like find documents, find, you know, archival records, letters, track people down in like all kinds of remote places so that I could actually hear like, well, what was it like for you as the Indian women who were involved in this? Because I wanted that to be an yeah, equal part yeah. of the story. Yeah, no, and it, and it really is. And it's wonderful. I'm curious, how do you think, you know, Mokama itself changed as a result of the sisters' presence? Or or maybe there's a better way to put this. Like, how did their presence um, eventually become sort of part of the, the community fabric of this region in India? So it's, it's a remarkable thing to visit now. The last time I was there, I mean, this is a hospital in, again, you know, a small town, a very, you know, that's basically run by a few very powerful upper caste families, upper caste men. And right in the middle of it is this hospital, which is not only, you know, a strong and, um, you know, an important sort of institution that's run by a minority, a religious minority in India, which is a very difficult thing right mm-hmm. now, but it is completely run by women. Yeah. And there are just so few places like that in a town like this in India. So that in itself, like just their presence is a reminder of, you know, what's possible. And it's really become sort of a magnet for, I mean, now it's, it's really not about, you know, I mean, there are no American women who work there anymore. Um, you know, it's really very much run by Indian women. But now, I mean, the young women who are coming there are from uh, the indigenous communities of India. You know, there are sort of in- Indian women who generally are coming from more educated communities who are running it. Like right now, they're the sort of leadership level, but the women who are coming up are from indigenous communities, which are, again, like they're layers and layers of oppression in a place like uh-huh. India. And I feel like it's sort of, you know, you see how things change. I mean, and there are issues there like, oh, well, you know, there these are more privileged Indian women, you know, kind of working with um, less privileged Indian women, like there are issues there. But again, this is a place that's kind of growing and changing all the time. Yeah, it's so it's such a fascinating story. Um, not just because you know these these nuns themselves are so interesting and all their different personalities and and the you know the transformation that they undergo, but also because the book it, itself uses their and their experiences to tell this fascinating history of partition um, that I still it boggles the mind that people don't know, like grown-ups don't know this history still boggles my mind, but fine. And just the sort of the feminist movement and and the role of missionaries in India, it's a it's an absolutely delightful and such a fun book to read. Um, it's called Sisters of Mukama. Um, and Jyoti Totem, I'm so grateful for you uh, to join us on Metaphysical Milkshake. Thank you for this conversation. Jody Totem, thank you for joining us. It's called The Sisters of Mokama. It's available now at all bookstores. I'm really grateful for the time. 
So uh, there you go, Rain. Uh, I, wow. Did that make you feel uncomfortable just slightly? No, 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 <laughs> not at all. I mean, it's uh, I got a lot out of it. It's fascinating. It's complicated. It's nuanced. Yeah. It's incendiary. It's an important conversation for us to be happening. I'll tell you one thing that that's yeah. really interesting. That, you know, this when we were talking about how it is often the case that the white savior is the one who ends up getting saved. That oftentimes the the sort of the the privileged you know well, white man who goes into whatever the foreign land in order to like bestow the gift of whiteness <laughs> upon them. Yeah. More often than not, what happens is that they are the ones who receive the gift of the indigenous culture. They are the ones who are often transformed. Mm. They're the ones who get saved. You know what I'm saying? I bet that's mm -hmm. something that you could probably relate to. Well, listen, um, the work that we've done in Haiti has been truly transformative for my wife and I uh, in so many ways. Um, and of course, we came in with that kind of like, white American can-do idealism of like, hey, we can just do this and X, Y, and Z and set up a school here and teach this. And and of course, nothing went according to plan. And we were humbled by our own um, arrogance as well. And uh, But it has been uh, truly a pleasure and an honor to be hiring, working with Haitians, learning from them, uh, because who better knows the needs of their country uh, than the Haitians themselves? Yeah. So um, it's really, uh, really putting to bed once and for all that uh, we uh, white Americans have the answers and know the best way and are dispersing that throughout the world um, as the British and the French and, and the Dutch and everyone else were doing in centuries previous. Um, it's really time to put, put that to bed because that has had devastating consequences. But, you know, being white doesn't mean you shouldn't try to, you shouldn't stop. But, you know, being white doesn't mean you should stop trying to help people because yeah. it can help them and transform yourself. And, um, but my favorite story around this is Kung Fu, where, of course, other than the fact that David Carradine was white <laughs> and should have been Chinese, had yeah. he been played by the original idea, which was Bruce, Bruce Lee, Lee yeah. Kung Fu with the Chinese man coming to the Old West, teaching the Americans about peace, love, and the Dharma, um, and with a little martial arts thrown in. That's a beautiful story. Yeah. Look, it's a lot more complicated than I think uh, it, it sounds on its surface, and I think that was what the conversation really brought out. What, what do you guys think, milkshakers? Tell us. Uh, what are your thoughts about the whole white savior trope? It's very easy to get in touch with us. Obviously, you can find us on social media at Reza Aslan and at Rain Wilson and on Twitter at Metamilk Podcast. We're on Instagram at Metaphysical Milkshake. What's your thoughts on the white savior trope? Has the white savior trope itself become a kind of racist trope? Uh, let us know. Uh, you can also remember to follow, rate, and review Metaphysical Milkshake on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And indeed, if you do review us on Apple Podcasts, all you got to do is email us a screenshot of that review. You can email it to metaphysical at castmedia.com. That's cast with a K. And if you do that, the first five people will get a copy of Sisters of Mokama, this fascinating story of these half dozen nuns 
And you can, of course, also subscribe to the Metaphysical Milkshake YouTube channel and watch our full episodes every week. And, uh, you know, we, we love you guys. Let's, I can't wait to read that book. I really can't. And I think you're a little biased because you just wrote a book about a white guy who traveled all the way to Iran <laughs> to go take part in the Iranian uh, revolution yeah. at the turn of the century. That's right. Can't wait to read all of these delicious white savior stories <laughs> coming a, soon. To a white saviors are all the rage right now. So trendy. They're so hot. So trendy. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for that great interview, Reza. All right. Take care, everyone. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It is produced by Safa Samazadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. Original music by Jeff Tang. What does your mom think of the book, by the way? I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Has she has she Yeah, given she's her really proud yet? of it. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, she's read it and... She read it before publication. Um, you know, she's read it since then. She's very proud. She still sort of will say sometimes, like, you know, she, like for her, these are all just things that happen. Yeah. You know, and she's kind of like, yeah, you know, like lots of people did that. It wasn't that, you know, not yeah. that remarkable. But I think that's sort of for me and for other people to really appreciate like how um, extraordinary the story really is. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.